Today we'll be looking at God's goal for the church. What is God's goal for the church? If you love God, you'll want to know the answer to that question, and you will want to fulfill that. And let me just start off by giving you two reasons why this message needs to be taught, why this message needs to be given. Yeah. There's two truths. And on outward appearances, on first glance, they might be contradictory. They might conflict with one another. In some ways, they do. Here's the first truth. Okay, God calls all Christians to gather together in local churches for the purposes of worshiping Him and also to reflect His glorious character to the world. You've probably heard that catechism that says, what is the chief end of mankind? Of course, the answer is, the chief, your chief end, your purpose for being here is to glorify God. Glorify God. But what, what does that mean, though? We sometimes struggle with that. I mean, after all, we know 1 Corinthians 10.31 says we're to do all to the glory of God. But what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, you do that by reflecting His glorious character to all of the world. Everyone you come in contact with needs to see Christ in you. Well, that's a high calling. And that really can conflict with the second truth that we need to understand is that we're still sinners. <laughs> we live in a fallen world. We ourselves are sinners. Even, even if you're a believer, you're still a sinner. You know that. You know that conflict that Gen or, sorry, not Genesis, Galatians 5 talks about the flesh versus the spirit. You know it. You feel it. You experience it. And so how do these two statements then work together? I mean, God calls us to do something amazing, to reflect His glorious character to the world, but yet I'm still a sinner. We are sinners. So how is, how is those things going to work together? I mean, God calls us to glorify Him by living together in a local church. But how can sinful people then reflect God? I mean, this the reality is, you and I know this, it's hard. It's very hard to do that. One of the things we see in Ephesians is unity. One of the key words in Ephesians is the word one. One. It's, it's used a lot of times in this book. So unity is, is certainly one of the key themes in Ephesians. And the reality is it's hard. And I'll just give you one illustration. Now, we could see this worked out in multiple ways. But uh, here, here's a good one. During World War II, you're probably familiar that uh, Adolf Hitler commanded all of the religious groups in Germany to unite so that he could control them. And among the brethren churches in Germany, half of them ended up complying and half of them refused to do what Hitler wanted him to do. And so those who went along with what Hitler was saying had an easier time, of course, and those who did not go along with Hitler faced harsh persecution. And even in, in almost every family of those who resisted, somebody ended up dying, and uh, many ended up going into concentration camps. But when the war was over, there, was, there, was this, there were feelings of bitterness that was running deep within those two groups. There was a lot of tension between these two groups that didn't used to be there before World War II. Finally, they decided the situation had to be healed, so the leaders from each of those two brethren groups met at a quiet retreat. For several days, 
before they actually even came together, what they ended up doing is they ended up spending time in prayer, time in God's Word. They were communing with God, examining their own hearts in light of what Scripture says. And they did that before they came together. Eventually, they did come together after much time of prayer and seeking God's wisdom. And you might ask, well, what did they do then? Well, here's what one man said, I quote, we were just one, end quote. And so as they ended up confessing their hostility and their bitterness, uh, not only to God, but they, they, to their bitterness to one another and just everything that ended up happening, they, they yielded control of their lives and everything to God. The Holy Spirit ended up creating a spirit of unity and love amongst them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. We see this concept in the book of Ephesians. There was division even in the church at Ephesus. We, we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I want us to, as we look at uh, part of Ephesians today, I want us to understand the main idea. Here's the main idea, that God's goal for the church is unity. God's goal for the church is unity. And I want to begin by considering a foundational question as we think about this. What is or not what, why is the church important to God? He's the author, he's the one who's, who's in charge, Jesus is the head. And so to answer that question, we want to go to the book of Ephesians here, particularly, we'll look at a few verses in Ephesians 3 and 4, where Paul is going to lay out the importance of the church, particularly in God's plan of redemption. How does it fit in God's plan of redemption? And I want to quickly just kind of go through uh, the, the whole passage Kind of get a quick overview, and then we'll summarize some critical points. What we see here in Ephesians is something that's called the mystery of the gospel. What is this mystery of the gospel? I mean, Paul calls it a mystery, and don't don't think of mystery as you know uh, you know something like Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie or whatever you know the, those those kind of mysteries where where someone is murdered and somebody's trying to figure out well who did it. Right? That, that, that's not the mystery that Ephesians is talking about here. It's just previous, some, some knowledge that, that is coming to light, if you will. Something being revealed here to us. And to give you some context here, Paul has spent chapters 1 and 2 describing the power of this good news. The power of this gospel. And though we as Christians were dead in our transgressions and sins, we, we saw that in the beginning of chapter 2, we are now alive in Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, we are now reconciled both to God as well as to each other. So, so because we're reconciled to God, we're, we're, as a believer, you're no longer his enemy, then it is possible to have, have a healthy relationship with other people. And so I want you to just kind of pick up Paul's thought here as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verse 2. Look at verse 2. The Word of God says this, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Let's just stop there for a moment, okay? What is this mystery that Paul seems to understand so well? Uh, picture yourself being 
there at the church in Ephesus. And, and this letter has, is, has come. This letter's being read. Just try to picture yourself in that situation. Picture hearing it or reading it for the first time. What is this mystery that Paul understands so well? Well, if you look at verse 6, he'll help explain it to us. He says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And by the way, a Gentile is just somebody who's not a Jew. right? So that would include us. He says these Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus, notice how this comes through this good news, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you see, Paul is excited here. I hope you get this excitement of his. He's excited about the fact that Christianity has now united all the Jews and the Gentiles together into one body. One body. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He was training to... Uh, under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And so he, he understood this really well. He understood this division that the, the Jews had toward all everybody else. The hatred that had existed for centuries was overcome, and the only way it was overcome was in Jesus Christ and his gospel. If you look at chapter 2, Christ, it says, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that was between the Jews and Gentiles. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? Well, look, verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So how can two warring parties possibly come together and love one another? How is that possible? Well, it's it's only by God's grace. Only through through the work of God in us. And so let, let's go back to chapter 3 here real quick. And here Paul says that the proclamation of this mystery is something that was central to his ministry. And you can see that in verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul understood this was his responsibility. So what is the unity in the gospel? And why is this unity in the gospel so important? (laughs) The Bible talks a lot about this. Why is unity so important? Well, Paul gives us a unique glimpse into God's purpose in verse 10. Verse 10 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now this is hard to really understand and really to get the full grasp of it. Who are these rulers, these authorities that Paul's talking about here? Well, I can't say for sure, 100% sure, dogmatically, but the, the, the next phrase that comes after those words is certainly helpful. And notice it's, it's, it's something, someone 
in the heavenly realms. It's certainly suggesting it's something in the spiritual dimension that is that is above and beyond us, uh, beyond the physical realm that we exist in. So what is absolutely clear is that it is through the church here, and by the way, specifically through the unity that we see through the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church that God is bringing glory to himself. In a sense, he's, he is showing off. God is striving to show off. He wants to, to reveal himself, reflect himself and his character to the world. And he's chosen to do it through the church. Yes, of course he does it in creation. That's, that's general revelation. Of course he does it in his word, but clearly Ephesians 3 is telling us he also does it through his church. So how does the church display God then? <laughs> this is amazing. You think about this. Only, only God could come up with this kind of plan. Only an all-wise God could possibly devise a way where he, he reconciles people through his love and his justice he saves rebellious people who are actually at enmity against him. And then, and then he makes them one. He even makes, he gives us the grace to love prickly people. To love people that we wouldn't naturally find something in common with. That's what he does. So then how should we live? If, if that is the reality, which it is, how then should we live? Well, if you keep reading through the rest of chapter 3, Paul ends up praying for the family of God. And, and here's some things he ends up praying for. Wonderful prayers, by the way. Let me encourage you, go back and, and read. I love particularly Paul's prayers in Scripture. They've helped to guide my prayers over the years. But one of the things he says, he, he asks God to strengthen them through the Holy Spirit. He also prays that they would understand Christ's love for them. And as a result of that, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. What a wonderful prayer. <laughs> Just take each one of those points and maybe you, I encourage you to use those for your fellow believers. And then you come to chapter 4. And then Paul begins to apply the truths that were just discussed in the previous chapters. He calls the Ephesian Christians to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, my guess is, over the years, because I've made this mistake as well, as you read, particularly in chapter 4, you might hear this exhortation in a little different way than that was actually intended for the original hearers. We, We tend to individualize things, which, okay, there's not necessarily something wrong with that. It's not inherently evil to do that, but... You have to understand the context. This is a letter to a church. It's, it's meant to be taken in the plural, in the corporate sense here. And so you, you might start to think immediately of your own personal holiness here. And you can certainly make implications here. But if you keep that exhortation firmly planted in the context of chapter 3, it's, it's clear that the Holy Spirit doesn't have our individual holiness in mind here. What he has in mind, though, is our life corporately, together as a church. How is the church to live together? What should characterize our relationships in the church? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 2. 
chapter 4, verse 2. Because in verse 1, he says, I therefore... Well, just let me just back up to verse 1. Because therefore, whenever you see that, you need to ask, well, what is that therefore? Paul's referring to that stuff he's just talked about in chapter 3. And he says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is that going to look like? Well, look at verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So remember, as you read that, that is not written to you as an individual. That is written to the church. And and specifically to the church at Ephesus, which was also, by the way, that letter was sent around to other churches. And so as as a whole, we can take this as as the church, not just individuals. And then through the next verses, Paul describes our calling as one body. And and he talks about our unity with each other. And it's fostered by the gifts that God gives to us. Uh, You can read, for example, just reference 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And we see that the Holy Spirit gives all believers at least one spiritual gift for the purpose of edifying the church. Certainly not for just for you, but it's to be used for others. And so this unity is going to be fostered as God the Holy Spirit gives you gifts that you can use to help other believers. So what's the goal of those gifts? Well, look at verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Because verse 11 talks about the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. (laughs) You see the unity there? Until we all attain, verse 13 says, do we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So what's the goal of those gifts? To serve. Serve others and to bring God honor and glory. Well, there's several main ideas that we can pull out of the text here. Let me just share a few with you. Let's notice... Uh, three truths in particular that are of critical importance in this passage. Number one, the unity of the church is central to the message of the gospel. The unity of the church is central to the message of the gospel. See, you proclaim something about God and His character as you live together as a church. When you're living with other believers in a relationship with them, you're proclaiming something of God. And one of the great accomplishments of Christ's work is, we saw in chapter 2, he broke down that dividing wall of hostility that existed. Why did that exist? Well, Ephesians 2 verse 1 talks about our trespasses and sins. Sin divides, that's what it does. Sin separates. Number The greatest problem of all is it separates us from God, but sin also separates us from one another. Even as believers, we struggle with this, don't we? As, as husband and wife, uh, you know, mother and, and child, or 
grandparent and grandchild. You can see how sin is separating you in your relationships. It's through the blood of Christ that we're reconciled with God and we are then reconciled to one another. Number two, church unity showcases the wisdom of God. You saw that in chapter 3. And so you have to understand the church is not just a collection of people who come together and they tolerate one another for just long enough so they can sing a few songs together and listen to a sermon and then go home and, and, and ignore those prickly people. That's not what it's about. <laughs> All right? Not what it's about. That is not the, what the church is. The church is a gathering of people who are demonstrating a unity that is so powerful that the only, the only way it's possible is through God and the Holy Spirit working in us. Number three, cultivating unity is our responsibility as church members. It is your responsibility. You have to understand it's the entire church that's been gifted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible's clear on this. Every believer receives at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. And so Paul calls the entire church here to keep the unity of the Spirit. How? Through the bond of peace. Now, the concept and the truth of unity is found throughout the Bible. It's not just found in Ephesians. So what is God's goal for the church? Clearly, it's unity. Why is that? Well, it's because when redeemed sinners, sinners who've been bought from the slave market of sin, uh, join up with other believers who have been bought from the slave market of sin, and, and they have little in common, like Gentiles and Jews, for example. And then those people who have little in common with one another end up loving each other. What is that displaying? It displays God's character. And God is glorified when we display Him in an accurate way. It's something that God says, this is displaying Him in, in ways that no other way could do it. Not even creation can do this. And so this truth is not, again, it's not unique to the book of Ephesians. It's found throughout the Bible, and I'll just give you a few examples here. For example, John 13 says this. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when an unsaved person looks at us, what are they going to see? You just meditate upon that. What, are, what is an unsaved person going to see as they look at us, our church? Well, hopefully it matches up with what Scripture says, right? That's what it should be. They, they should see Christ. They should see God's character at work in us. So unity is not just an option. It's not an option. In fact, it's an integral part of our life as God's people and it's really hard the way the Apostle John put it. John, being the blunt kind of a guy he is, the black and white kind of a guy he is, here's how he puts it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, by the way, you could add sister in Christ, God says, you're a liar. That's what Scripture says. He is a liar who says this. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God 
whom he has not seen. Well, clearly, God's goal for the church is unity. Clearly, God's goal for the church is unity. Now, you have to understand, as we think about this, there's different kinds of unity. And really, we need to kind of, this is kind of the elephant in the room at the moment that needs to be addressed. So let's talk about the different kinds of unity. So what do we mean exactly when we talk about Christian unity? The Holy Spirit's addressing it, but even even Christians have different ideas on what does this look like and how is it actually lived out in the church? Well, there's one extreme, one extreme or pendulum swing that says the unity at all costs. Unity at all costs. It's unity trumps everything else, in other words. Some people say that all Christians should organize together in an institutional sort of a way, or, or at least cooperate together as a single body of believers. That's why we have things like the World Council of Churches, for example. Because there are people who believe this way. And so we don't want any, any dividing walls at all. And so we, we'll unite for this purpose. And they say the problem with Christianity is that our doctrinal disagreements are actually damaging our abilities to influence the world for the kingdom of God. And therefore, that we, we need to then set aside our differences. Uh, we, we need to downplay doctrine and unite for a greater cause of making the world a better place. That, that's kind of their language and the way they speak. The problem with this kind of unity, though, is it's shallow. Very shallow. Very, very shallow. And the other issue is many who call themselves Christians would disagree on some very fundamental questions, fundamentals of the faith. I'll just give you some examples. Uh, and, I, and I personally believe these are fundamentals of the faith. These are essentials. And you've heard me say before that in the essentials you must have unity. Non-essentials, you can have diversity in all things love. So, these are some of the things that get downplayed and, and suppressed. We don't want to talk about them. They're just kind of swept under the rug. For example, what does it mean to be a Christian? Wow, we... It's <laughs> a fundamental question. Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? What must people do to be saved? So if you want to have unity on, on that kind of a level, unity at all costs, then you have to downplay those things. You sweep them under the rug. You don't talk about those things. The problem is, though, when there's disagreement about fundamentals of the faith, no real unity can actually be nurtured because unity comes from the truth. Real unity, genuine unity, comes from the truth. So one of the pendulum swings and extremes is unity all costs then then you got the other one it goes way over to the other side says there's no unity <laughs> we we don't we don't want to fellowship with anybody no unity at all and there are some christians who think that unity is almost a bad word and uh you might call them separatists and so these separatists can certainly go too far in their separation and they'll share christian fellowship with only those who agree with them on every jot and tittle and every single point, even, even the non-essentials. And many separatistic churches end up fo focusing uh, undue attention on the non-essentials. 
and they'll, they'll, oh, they'll focus on uh, all, all things, you know, dealing with Christian living. You know, they, they talk uh, about all the Christian standards of, you know, you got to have this kind of music, and you can only go to these kind of places, and only read this this stuff, and you can only work in these kind of environments, and and, and it's just all that kind of stuff, right? There are people out there like that. And as a result, they become known more for being divisive and legalistic than for anything else. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be known for that sort of stuff. I would hope that we as a church would be want to be known for being followers of Christ, people who love God, who are passionately following Jesus Christ, love the gospel, love the word of God. So what do we do then? Those are the extremes. Well, then the the other option is you avoid the extremes. And and, and you, you have a right kind of a unity that is then balanced. Let me ask you this. What is true Christian unity? What is true Christian unity? Well, in this fallen world, real unity it, it falls between those two extremes somewhere. Now, perhaps a helpful way to help us get our heads around the kind of unity that the Holy Spirit's talking about here in Ephesians, is to think of it in terms of an action, a purpose, a source, and a place. All right? Let's just quickly think about those four things. Number one, the action that defines Christianity is what? It's love. The action that defines Christianity is love. In particular, it is love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and what it does is it actually crosses all the worldly boundaries. How is it possible that that you can have love for these brothers and sisters who are being persecuted at somewhere else in the world? Why is it that God's given you a desire to pray for them? Why are you concerned about them? Well, that's only made possible because of, of God's love. In this world, people divide all kinds of socioeconomic Lines, racial lines, ethnic lines. People divide when one person sins against another. But what does the gospel do, though? The gospel of Jesus Christ tears down those walls of hostility. And so we as Christians are now called to love those whom we wouldn't naturally be drawn to love. Think of it the way Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Our natural tendency is to love those who are like us and the people you get along with, right? But God says, hey, even those, those evil, wicked tax collectors do that. <laughs> so the action that defines unity is love. Number two, the purpose. Let's talk about that. The purpose of Christian unity, is the glory of God. Why are we to do this? Why does the Bible talk about this? It, again, it's to glorify God. You are to reflect God to this world. Now, that's a crucial point in determining whether or not unite with a, another group of people. Who are you to unite with? You're not to unite with everyone. So the purpose of Christian unity is to glorify God. And so you've got to ask questions like, well, is this other church or this other organization laboring for the same God we are? 
Well, not everybody who calls himself a Christian is laboring for the same God of the Bible that we believe. And if they're not, then, of course, you can't unite with them. Uh, here's another question. Are they seeking to proclaim the same gospel? Well, Paul addressed that in Galatians 1. He, he said that some, some were preaching another gospel. And he says, well, those people are condemned. Don't unite with them. Uh, another question is this. Are there fundamental differences that are, will cause people to believe in a different gospel? Right? Even, for example, I've said this before, even Muslims believe in Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. Therefore, you can't unite with a, a Muslim in a, in, a, in a religious sort of a way. And so the last thing that you and I should want to do is then communicate to the world that we're okay with the beliefs of other people that are actually denying the gospel. And there, was a, there was an issue that I read about a couple years ago where uh, in, in, a, in a gospel group in the United States where there was someone in the group who didn't believe in the Trinity. And so there, was a, there ended up being this, this clash going on. Do, do we unite with somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity? Well, there were many good, good pastors who stood up and said, no, I can't, I can't have anything to do with that man. He's a heretic. And sadly, there was, there was some who said, well, you know, I can go along with that. I don't actually agree with him, but I'll go along with him anyway. You know, unity became more important than doctrine. So we've got to be careful who we unite with because it, it does actually say something. Well, let's move on to number three, the source. The source of Christian unity is the love of Christ. So the action that defines the Christian unity is love for one another, but how is that even possible? It's not something that you can just stir up and manifest, you know, on your, in your own strength. It doesn't, no way. No way. Apostle John said that we love because he first loved us. First John 4 says. So the only way that we love God and we can possibly love other people who are different from us is because he loves us first. So real Christianity then has at its deep, at its root, a deep understanding that number one, you and I are forgiven. We're under the blood of Christ. And so real unity comes when all believers are looking to Christ. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Let me illustrate it this way. I've got a, a picture here you can look at. Uh, in a couple weeks, uh, I'm going to be going to the, the, the Hamilton Garden Festival. This is a normal tradition for my family. We love going to watch the orchestra play it's a beautiful orchestra and if you've ever gone to watch an orchestra you'll notice typically i should say typically you'll have the first chair violin stand up and then you'll see the whole orchestra look to that first chair violin and and then they tune their instruments to the first chair violin all of, the whole orchestra looks to that person and their instrument and tune to them so they're tuning their instruments to his, in this case, his instrument. I think that's a good example that churches, we as believers, need to follow. Who is the one we need to look to? Who's the one whom we tune our lives to, if you will? Well, we're Hebrews 12, 2. We're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
The problem is we're not all doing that. Sometimes we, we look to gurus, of human gurus, ourselves, right? We, we, we go on the Internet or we read books. We, we look at each other and, and say, hey, I'm going you know, to follow them or do, hey, that looks good. I'll do that, right? We, we look to our own human wisdom. And the problem is when everybody's looking at other things, we're out of tune. And it's, have you ever heard a lot of instruments playing together that are out of tune? Whoa, whoa, that is disgusting. Eee, oh, just sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it? There's that clashing going on between instruments. But, a, but an orchestra that is all in tune, playing together, looking to the same person, is a beautiful thing. And that's what God is saying here in Ephesians. I am displaying my wisdom to the whole world, even to the angels and, and, and the, the heavenly realms. I want the entire universe to see me through you. So the source of Christian unity is the love of Christ. Number four, and finally here, we see that the place for Christian unity is primarily worked out in the local church. Have you ever noticed that most of the books in your New Testament were written to churches or leaders within local churches? Of course, Christian unity is not limited to an individual local church, but it, it works itself out most practically in that context. It's in the local church that the Bible says you and I get to learn to rejoice with those whom we may not naturally rejoice. And we, 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 can, we can celebrate uh, the birth of a child. We can celebrate a marriage, like when Greg and Marie got married, for example. Or we can celebrate a, a, a raise or you know, whatever. Those, any, anything, we can celebrate those good things together with even people you may not naturally do that with. The Bible also says we can weep with those whom we wouldn't naturally weep and we come alongside our brothers and sisters and we comfort them and we pray for them. So the place for Christianity is primarily worked out in local church. So when you add all those things together, Here's a great definition for Christian unity. True Christian unity is found in God-glorifying, gospel-revealing love for all brothers and sisters in Christ, fueled by our forgiveness in Christ that expresses itself most clearly in the assembly of the local church. Great definition. Not original with me. Don't remember where it came from, no? So let's talk about the benefits. In other words, what's in it for you? A lot of people want to know, hey, what's in this for me? I mean, this is, unity is hard work, isn't it? Particularly getting along with those, those prickly people. Yeah, there, there's just some people who are harder to get along than, with than others. We know that. So what's in it for you? Well, number one, your assurance of salvation. <laughs> that's one thing that's in it for you. One of the benefits of Christian unity we see in 1 John chapter 3 is this. Look, look on the screen. The Bible says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's spiritual death. Verse 19 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. 
So you, you see that word reassure there. God gives us assurance of salvation when we're, we're doing what He wants us to do. And so when we look at our relationship with other Christians and we see love rather than strife, and we see the other fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh, that should encourage you and me. It should encourage us that we are actually God's children. I, I'm certainly encouraged by that because I look at some of the stuff I say and do. And By the way, I, I, it doesn't mean I'm perfect because I'm not. But when, it, when I do actually say something that's glorifying to God or do something that's glorifying to Him, I say, sometimes I'm thinking, wow, well, that wasn't natural with me. That was God working through me. And, and, it, and it gives me great assurance of my salvation. But unity in the body of Christ is an important part of a believer's assurance of salvation. John makes it, he gives us many points throughout his book. Number two, the second benefit of unity is encouragement. It's encouragement. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 10 here, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why does God say that we as a local church should meet together? Why, why should we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? It's to stir us up. Stir each other up in a good way, not a, not a bad way. Stirring each other up in a, in a good way to love and good works so that we would be encouraged. Encouraging one another. So God's written these words, by the way, not to you as an individual. He's written these for us as a church. We corporately are to be encouraging one another. So our life together as a church is important then, isn't it? And of course, God knows what we need. God knows we, we need each other to pray for one another, to correct one another, to instruct one another, to encourage one another so that we would love each other. The third benefit of unity is orthodoxy. You may not be familiar with that term, so please understand that, look at it this way, that unity does something here, and particularly in the doctrine. The unity protects our doctrine. If you look at Ephesians 4, and as we look at Ephesians 4, remember, Paul was writing about building up the unity of the church here. So look at Ephesians 4, verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, remember the context. And in this context, we see unity protecting the doctrine. So that we're not we're not like a a, a ship that ha, is is under no power, just being tossed about in the waves and blown about by the wind. Number four, the fourth benefit of unity is evangelism. 
don't know if you ever thought about this, but there is a benefit in evangelism. And Jesus, I think, makes this clear in John 17, verse 20, when, when Jesus says this, it's on the screen. He says, I do not ask for these only. And these only, he's referring to his disciples. So he's praying in John 17. He's not just talking about the 12. But he, he, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's evangelism. That they may all be one. There's unity. One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So God is the perfect model and example of unity. The, the Trinity, perfect unity there. And so Jesus was praying that we would understand that in a small way and live that out. The church's unity is one way that non-Christians will recognize Christ. If they're not going to read his word, then they need to look to us. They need to see Christ in us and Christ's mission Christ talked about that in John 17. So exposing a non-Christian then to the love we have for each other is going to be a powerful witness of God's work in us. Hopefully we want them looking at us and doing what Matthew 5 says. Right? They'll see our good works and then glorify our Father in heaven. Well, let me give you an illustration. Hopefully you can understand this fourth benefit of evangelism. Now, you may not have ever seen a snowflake. I'm curious, how many of you have seen a snowflake? Okay, <laughs> we, we don't get a lot of snow, so that's why I'm asking, right? But if you've you ever seen a, a, a snowflake up close like, like that before, what a beautiful thing. And, and my, my understanding is, I'm hoping I'm correcting, is that all snowflakes are different. God makes them all different, just like human beings all have different fingerprints, Snowflakes have their own little fingerprint, if you will, their own design. They're beautiful, aren't they? But they're fragile, very fragile. You, you, you could easily crush them. The sun can melt them instantly, or just they can be destroyed because they're very, very fragile. Okay, but here's the illustration. Stay with me. Individually, they're very fragile. But what happens when you take billions and billions of snowflakes and you connect them together, and they actually work together. Well, then you can have that happen, right? We, we call those avalanches. When billions and billions of snowflakes all come down the mountainside, they, they have a tendency of wiping out everything in their path, and unfortunately even human lives are lost in the process. They're very destructive, very powerful. Now, please don't take the illustration too far. The point is, the point is not, well, hey, let's just go and wipe out everybody in our path. No, that's not the, that's not the point of the illustration. The point is that we individually on our own are quite fragile and may not have a huge powerful effect. But think of God working through us corporately. Local churches working together see the power of God working in us. It can be so useful particularly when it comes to evangelism. So those are just four benefits, and I'm sure we can come up with more. But let's, let's finish by just coming back to the original 
question that we began with. Here it is. How can we, who are imperfect people, possibly display a big, awesome, glorious God who is perfect? How can imperfect people display a perfect God? How is that even possible? And you say, well, what is the answer? Well, the answer is that a sinful people can display both God's love as well as His holiness when they're living together in unity. Because God isn't just love, is He? Of course, He's he's far more complex than that. He has far many more attributes and characteristics than just love. And so, so a sinful people in submission to this holy God can show hopefully all of, well, not all, but the communicable attributes of God can be displayed. And so this unity doesn't come from just whitewashing our sin, just setting aside doctrine and sweeping it under the rug and pretending that Jesus doesn't have any commands in Scripture. No, that's that's not how the, the correct way to display God. But it, it calls sin what it is. It, but, but a unity, though, here, it has to be born from God's forgiveness of sin. And so this forgiveness is something that you and I, we both need to proclaim as well as live and extend to other people. And when we do that, we can glorify God. We'll, we'll be accurately reflecting Jesus Christ to the world around us. What a glorious calling that we can even be a part of that. It, it's humbling as well to think that God has called us to do this. In His wisdom, He is showcasing His wisdom to the world through us. Well, wow. Very humbling. And the only way it's possible is through the work of His Son, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So may, may, may we pray for that, toward that end, that God would make us that kind of people that are accurately reflecting God and His perfect character to the world. 